One of the things that stops small business owners from creating marketing content consistently is this feeling of being uninspired, of having no idea what to say in the first place. If you can relate to this, you are in good company. So many of us struggle with knowing what our marketing content should actually be about. But I am here to help. I have come up with 100 prompts that you can use to guide your marketing from your social media posts to your emails to your longer form content. I guarantee that these prompts will get you inspired and that you'll have more ideas than you even know what to do with. You can download this list of 100 marketing prompts for free at makinggoodpodcast.com slash 100 prompts. That's makinggoodpodcast.com slash 100-P-R-O-M-P-T-S. Welcome back to Making Good, the podcast for small businesses who want to make a big impact. I'm your host, Lauren Tilden, and this is episode 114. Today's episode is an interview with the amazing, super inspiring Sarah Hart. Sarah runs Simply Curated, a design-centric candle company. In this episode, Sarah really gives us a behind-the-scenes look into her business and specifically how she approaches wholesale. Sarah's story starts in her parents' basement in Queens, New York in 2012, where she started her business. And over the years, she's gone through some incredible changes, evolutions, and moves since then. She shares that story with us in this episode, which I think you're going to love. We also talked about Sarah's wholesale strategy, how Simply Curated uses FAIR, how Sarah recommends approaching new potential wholesale accounts, how to do trade shows, what you can learn from watching customers interact with your products in person, and much, much more. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Sarah, welcome to Making Good. Thanks, Lauren, for having me. It's so nice to be here. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. Yay, I'm super excited. Super, super excited. I would love for you to start by introducing your business. And I'd love to know a little bit of the story of how Simply Curated came to be. Sure. So it's a little bit of um, a long, not a long story, but basically I, I had started Simply Curated as actually not a candle business. It was a um, vintage like home accessories kind of reselling business. I was going to estate sales and like not flea markets, but um, like vintage shops and stuff and finding pieces that I felt like could fit really seamlessly into someone's home. Um, Really just curating um, from my aesthetic point of view. And it was really just an exercise to try and like show show my style, show, show my aesthetics. And I was just finding all these great pieces. And I was still living with my parents at the time. I didn't have an apartment to decorate, but I wanted Mm -hmm. to kind of share those kinds of things with like my friends and build up a community around it. Um, and I had started to find a lot of cool vintage glassware around that time. Uh, and I, was having a hard time finding somebody to like buy it. Bar carts were kind of a thing, but it wasn't, it wasn't like, I don't know. It wasn't as big as it became eventually. But a lot of times when you would find glass, you wouldn't find a complete set over the years, obviously like a glass or two breaks, you know, but the patterns, the illustrations on this glass were so beautiful. I wanted to find a way to, you know, to showcase that, to show off the, these, these designs on, on this glassware. 
And mm-hmm. a friend of mine, a couple months prior had, when she found out I was like doing vintage stuff, she had sent me an article about, or like a little like DIY link on how to make candles in vintage teacups. And it took like a five minute Etsy search to realize that there was already like plenty of people doing that. And that wasn't really my aesthetic. The vintage teacup thing was like a little too grandma for me personally um, <laughs> at the time. I think now, I, now I probably would be into it because I definitely swing a little, a little cottage core. But anyway, um, and I remembered I had seen wooden wick um, candles. There was another Etsy seller at the time who, um, her business doesn't exist anymore. Um, making them. And I just remember, I had never even burned one, but just the picture of what the wooden wick flame, like what a wood wick flame looked like, um, that kind of Mm -hmm. wide triangular flame was so beautiful to me. So I thought, okay, I could make candles in these vintage barware. I could try it and see if that would work. And so, um, I started experimenting with wax and, and making candles. And now the key thing to note here is that I did not like scented candles. I was I am incredibly sensitive to fragrance. Um, I've since learned it's more like I'm in, I'm sensitive to bad fragrance or poor quality mm-hmm. fragrance, but, and poor quality waxes. Um, but I tried making these candles unscented and they were beautiful. I mean, the decorations, like a bunch of 22 karat gold on this very like Mad Men era kind of barware. And I had set up, um, I had like planned to do a uh, flea market in Brooklyn. Uh, there's a place in Williamsburg called Artists and Fleas. And I, it was like a weekend in October and I had picked a weekend and um, to go there, bring my stuff and bring these candles. I only had like, I mean, six of them maybe along with like a bunch of other vintage things um, and set up this little booth and try to sell some stuff instead of just online. And Mm -hmm. people were really drawn to the way that the candles looked. And, but every time they walked up to them, they would, you know, pick it up off the shelf and immediately like put it to their nose. And Mm -hmm. that was when I realized that like people don't, didn't want a decorative unscented candle. I mean, tapers are a thing, but like this, that was not what their expectation was. Their expectation was for it to be scented. And Mm -hmm. I'll never forget the vendor in the booth next to me. Um, cause I'm still friends with him on Instagram and I tease him about this every once in a while, but he said to me, he's like, I bet if you made those candles scented, like that could become your whole business. And I was just like, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm not trying to like start a candle business. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, but I, I kind of thought about it and I said, okay, well, what would happen? Would I, I, would I sell any? Cause I didn't sell any, um, candles, but people were like, really drawn to them visually. So I thought, well, could I make scented candles that I don't hate? Like, are there, is it all scented candles like that would bother me or is, is there something in them, you know? And that was kind of what sent me down the rabbit hole on what goes into candles, the quality of all the chemicals, what are endocrine disruptors and like really just nerding out and like learning all of that stuff um, just through my own research online. And there were a ton of different blogs and there are candle making, you know, websites that sell supplies and stuff that had a bunch of resources. So really just learning and then ordering a bunch of samples of different fragrances and just starting to kind of experiment and see what bothered me, what I liked, what I didn't like. And I found I could make 
you know, I, there were scents that like I did enjoy. Um, and that especially with using a hundred percent soy wax, um, that didn't really bother me when burning them or when making them. So mm. a couple months later, I went back to the market and I had four cents. They were all still in vintage glass. Um, so they all were kind of different and one of a kind, but they had, you know, different fragrances to them and they sold really well. I still had all this other stuff, you know, and over the next mm-hmm. couple months, eventually about a month or two later in January of that year, I got a permanent booth at that market. So then I was there every weekend and little by little, I was selling more candles than anything else. Like I would sell other things, but the candles were really the thing that was like moving, moving it along. And because they were vintage and they were one of a kind, and I was doing all of the sourcing of all these vessels, like they were expensive. I want to say they were like $40. And there was Mm -hmm. another girl at that market every weekend selling, you know, Mason jar candles for like 10 bucks. And we both did well. So it just kind of goes to show you that it doesn't really matter. You know, don't worry so much Mm -hmm. about like what other people are doing, what other people, how other people are pricing. Like there's a market for your stuff at, at what it's worth. Um, but I was losing time. I was, I was running out of time during the week to like go look for new glass that was good quality. So I started having to like order glass on eBay and order through other Etsy sellers who had already, you know, like it, it was a mess. So <laughs> I, the price of my glass, like instead of finding it for a dollar or two was really going up because I was getting stuff other people had already sourced in order to kind of keep up with the demand. So mm-hmm. that was really like driving up my costs and definitely something that I realized, Oh, this is not sustainable, you know, with the, with the vintage glass, because there was just, there's a limit to what you can find and what's, what's available. And the pricing just kind of kept going up and up. And I was starting to get, by being at that market every weekend, I had loyal customers. I had people bringing their original vessels back to get refilled. Um, you know, it was really kind of building up a little customer base. And I was starting to get some questions about wholesale from like people like retailers in the neighborhood, but I didn't know enough about it. I needed to really learn wholesale. And then my first summer hit. So as June kind of creeped along and started to get warmer, my sales at this market every weekend just started to like tank. And I had not experienced that before. Um, and it was, that wasn't that the market was busy. It was that nobody wanted to think about things they were going to light on fire. So I pulled out of this, you know, I, I kind of let go of my space every, every weekend. And I said, okay, I'm going to take the summer to try to like learn everything I can about, about wholesale and restructure this whole business as a candle business. So like, forget about all the other stuff sell it off and just plan to just be, be candles. And I feel like I formulated a pretty good plan. Um, you know, I had kind of three price points in my collection. So it was kind of going with like a good, better, best, you know, model. And then I had no money to execute this plan. So I just (laughs) kind of (laughs) moped around my parents' house for a while. And eventually my mom was just like, Oh my God, get a job. Like I had, I had left my corporate job because I was like going to start a business and they thought I had like lost my mind. So of course they wanted me to go back to my my well-paying marketing job. 
And I knew that that was going to take all of my creative energy and more of my time than I could really offer if I was going to also be growing this business on the side. Mm -hmm. So instead I got a job as a nanny Mm -hmm. and I gave this family a one year commitment. I kind of told them that, you know, my plan is to continue to grow this business. And eventually probably at that point I had already decided I needed to move out of New York because New York was going to be too expensive. Um, I was making everything in my parents' basement and rapidly kind of outgrowing that space. But when I started looking at space in Brooklyn, it was like not going to happen. So, or it was just really out of my price range. Like it was unrealistic at the time. Um, so I decided to just leave New York and I didn't know yet where I was going, but when I kind of signed on for this year with this family, I did let them know ahead of time, like, Hey, these are my plans. And they were okay with, with knowing that as long as it was not going to be too much of a disruption, like for their kids, they wanted at least a year, like you're coming into their house every day. So, um, I did that. I worked 40 hours a week, but it was 10 hour days, four days a week. So I had Wednesday off and then I had the weekends off. So I had time to like work on the business. Um, and I basically put all of the extra money like that I wasn't using for like gas and food. Um, cause at the time, like I said, everyone's situation is different when they start a business. But at the time I was living with my parents, so I wasn't paying rent. Um, all my extra money I was able to really save up and put towards the business. And what I used it for primarily was I had this idea, you know, I I knew the kind of three collections I wanted to launch, but I knew nothing about packaging design. And I knew that at my price point and the, for the aesthetic I was going for, how important packaging was going to be. So I hired a design firm to work with me on designing the packaging. And so pretty much all the money went to paying their fee and they were nice enough to kind of do it on a payment schedule. But we worked on that project for these two different collections that they designed packaging for, for the next like six to eight months. Um, when that was done, I was like a couple months away from moving. I'd already decided I was moving to Grand Rapids. I'd come out here to visit. I would come out a second time to find a space. Um, and they were like, okay, so this project is like wrapping up. So now we need to like order all this packaging Mm -hmm. that we designed. (laughs) I was like, oh, right. I did not have more money for that. (laughs) So I did a Kickstarter. Um, so we did a Kickstarter, which if you search simply curated Kickstarter, you can find it and the cringy video that I made. Um, so it wasn't <laughs> like it, you know, I, I think I was trying to raise, I don't really remember. I'd have to look, I want to say like five or $6,000, like nothing crazy. And it wasn't one of those runaway successes because again, this was my first real reminder that like selling scented products on the internet is hard. <laughs> So I had a, a friend who at the time was actually doing a bunch of like crowdfunding consulting who I reached out to him and I was like, what are the like three things you, you think someone needs to know? And he said, you need to be sure you could raise 90% of the money on your network alone. You can't count on this platform to just bring in all the people because that's just not how it works. You have to market it and sell it just like anything else. So that information or that advice that I got from him really influenced like how my, I didn't go and say, oh, I want to raise $10,000 because I wasn't sure I could get $10,000 from friends and family. 
and it's a, you know, Kickstarter is all or nothing. So I think I really made my, my ask more reasonable. I looked at, okay, what do I need just to purchase these materials? And I kind of did it like a presale, you know? So that, that worked out. And then I had, you know, the next couple months to fulfill. Um, and obviously like this all feels like it's going really fast, but this was really the two year period of like what I, what I kind of explained to people as like, this is, if you saw the products from like before this, before Kickstarter, you know, they, they wouldn't even necessarily like reflect my values at all. But that mm-hmm. whole year that I was, you know, working with the designer and, and kind of build, you know, building up to this whole rebrand, I still was selling and making candles that whole time. I even started selling wholesale that whole time. Um, but I didn't want to do too much because I knew we were going to really change the look pretty dramatically and with it probably increase the price point. So I was a little cautious on, on what I, what I did on the wholesale side, but it still was a valuable experience to like not stop and drop off the face of the earth for like a year and then come back and be like, oh, okay, cool. I've got this to sell because over time I was still building up a clientele. I was still, mm-hmm. um, I was still learning about fragrance and what people liked, like all that stuff was valuable. So I think even if you know you're making a change, I feel like it's important to not stop the momentum of the business because you'll get stuck. I think. I feel like that's, that happens a lot of the time. So that's kind of how I got started and how I ended up here in Grand Rapids. And since I moved to Grand Rapids, well, October will be eight years since I moved here and 10 years in business. Yeah. And which is crazy. Um, it's been my full-time job ever since I, I moved and I don't, I don't say that lately. And I also like to put a little asterisk of like, it's not like I was making the kind of salary that I felt like I deserved those first couple of years, but I meant it was paying all of my living expenses and, you know, kind mm-hmm. of basic bills. I definitely adjusted my lifestyle down so that I felt like I could focus on the business and continue to kind of have that be my, my priority for those first few years. Yeah. Yeah. Such an amazing story. Actually, I didn't know that it started off as more of like a vintage curation thing. And I also didn't know that you started in New York. Yeah. Makes sense. Something just like that stands out to me of what you've described so far is something I talk a lot about when it comes to marketing, but I think your whole like business story reflects this is Mm -hmm. what is just the concept of doubling down on what works. And I really like how you were willing to kind of make some big shifts, even like, you know, really shifting the direction of your business because you were, you know, really reacting to the way that people are reacting to what you had to offer. So really taking that customer feedback and customer, I guess, preference to heart and letting that guide the direction of your business. I think that a lot of people, especially makers, um, you know, a lot of times they end up in business, like they come to it from a place of, I love making this thing. Let's see if I can sell it. And then if the market doesn't respond in the way that maybe you had hoped, or, you know, you really have a love for this product, but it's just not really moving. Sometimes we get too attached and we have a hard time, you know, letting that go. 
and Mm -hmm. really, like you said, reacting to the market. And anytime you're at any kind of craft show or in-person market, you know, of course we all want to have like good sales, but I would say the opportunity that you have to get in-person feedback from customers is invaluable. I was always taking feedback, especially on fragrances. Like what do they gravitate towards first based on the name? Then when they smell it, what's their reaction? Like regardless of whether or not I made a sale, I learned so much information that I couldn't get from the internet. So when you're in person, really try to pay attention to like, what are, what are, which ones of your products are people gravitating towards? What pulls them in? Do they ask a lot of questions about a specific product? Maybe your packaging is unclear. You need better signage. There's so many things you can learn when you're interacting with customers aside from just like closing the sale. So mm-hmm. I think you're right. It's really important to be adaptable that initial like vintage candle thing that we did um, was wonderful. And then over time, we were like the next launch, like we, or that we did when we rebranded, we had a collection called the cocktail collection. That was my whole, like the same aesthetic as the vintage glass, but manufacturing the patterns ourselves so that not ourselves, but you know, they were our own original designs and then pouring candles in them so that they would be proprietary and it would be scalable. However, making glassware with real 22 karat gold on it made the price point of this candle like so high and people love them. They were drawn to them, but ultimately the price, it just didn't work. It didn't match what people were willing to pay for a candle, at least from a brand that was relatively new. So after five or six years of that line, that collection on the market, we discontinued it. And a lot of our, even our sales reps were like, what? That's like the, the whole story of the brand. Like the whole story is you started making them in vintage and then you designed this whole thing. And I'm like, no one's buying these. It mm-hmm. doesn't matter that, that like you have to figure out how to tell the story different. That's not my problem. So <laughs> yeah, I, I think I was, I was having a hard time with like, getting rid of it because it it was such a big part of the story. And I didn't understand at first, but somebody said to me, like, it's still a part of your story. You're just starting a different chapter. Like this chapter is just closed now. And it's so true. It doesn't erase what you did before just because you evolved and changed and made decisions that were important to your business financially. You know, you have to be able to make those decisions if you want to stay alive. So but I think it's always important to try to remove some of the emotion from it, which can be hard, you know, like we, I think we're all attached to our products and attached to our businesses, but at the end of the day, like it's about it making money and providing a living for you and for the people who work for you. So that's always like my main priority, I think. Yeah. Which is like, that's, that's having your business hat on and not like the, I'm so attached to my product hat on, which we all kind of struggle with, I think a little bit, but I think another thing I just want to call out is like the, the fact that you have evolved what you sell so dramatically from the beginning. I think sometimes we feel like whatever we're doing now is exactly what we're going to be doing you know, Mm -hmm. in the future. So that seems to add like all this pressure to getting it exactly right right now. Um, But the reality is like we adjust, we adapt, we change you, we discontinue the collection that like kind of we started the business with, like all of these things are just part of the the journey and it's okay. So I, to me, I take 
permission from that to like, just start somewhere, you know, like put something out there now. It doesn't have to be forever, but, um, you got to take action. So if you saw the, if you saw the packaging that like we started out with, I mean, I, I have this one picture that I will always save and probably not show (laughs) very many people, but it, it was from a retailer from like one of our early wholesale accounts and they shared it on their social media feed. And I was using boxes that were just kind of like standard craft gift boxes from Uline, I think. And then like a label I was printing out at home. And I think I had ordered the wrong size label. So like some new shipments went out with like a slightly different size label. And like they had these four cents like lined up in a row that they put Mm -hmm. on their Instagram. And like there's one in the middle that's like got a totally different size label than the other three. And I'm like (laughs) cringing. Mm-hmm. Like this, it looks so bad to me. And yet, like they still were selling them in their store. And like, you know, so sometimes you just got to get it out there into the world, like progress over perfection for sure. But um, yeah, we've come a long way, I feel like for sure. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Like you just have to get it out there. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. So. You have scaled quite significantly since then. And I know that wholesale is a really big part of your business now, um, which it sounded like you kind of, it has been so since like pretty close to the beginning. So mm-hmm. how, like, I guess just overall, what does your business look like in terms of percentage wholesale versus retail orders through your website and any in-person stuff you do? Um, and then how have you approached getting wholesale accounts. Yeah. So I think that the initial, like it was a very conscious decision in the beginning to focus on wholesale because of the type of product. Um, Specifically when you have a scented product and you're, you know, a brand that not very many people are familiar with yet. Um, they need that in-person experience, right? Or you're going to have a really uphill battle with marketing. Um, So I pivoted to wholesale as kind of a marketing strategy. The more stores I could get the product in, the more people would be able to smell the products in person, maybe purchase it. And then maybe if they were buying it again or buying it as a gift for someone else, then they would come back and buy it on our website. And so my whole plan was really get it into as many stores as possible. And then the, the e-commerce side would eventually see a trickle down effect. Now that did happen. However, not necessarily as fast as I would have liked necessarily. Um, The truth is people are going to go back to that same store that they bought it at and then buy it again. Mm -hmm. And then maybe after three times, if that store stops carrying it, then maybe they'll realize that you have a website and then maybe they'll buy it from you. Right. That's more realistic about how it actually works. But that was my, that was my intention from the beginning and why I made a very concerted, like a very specific effort, you know, towards wholesale. So I was um, lucky enough at the time, like when I started the business to be living in New York and which is where I'm from. Um, but I kind of started following all of these different makers and small businesses on Instagram. A lot of them were paper goods companies. And that was kind of how I learned about the National Stationery Show. And I was able to get a badge as a buyer 
to walk the national stationery show one year, pretty early on, I think maybe my first year in business. Mm -hmm. And that was when I just realized like how power, like how powerful wholesale really was like being, seeing a trade show for the first time, it really like changed, you know, my goals and plans for the business. The other thing that was really empowering to me were all the small independent makers that were there. All these like, you know, individual booths with like one woman shows or like these very small female owned companies that were really just killing it. This was their, this was their job. This was their business. And I found that really empowering. Um, and I realized that eventually trade shows were something that I thought would be um, really important for to grow my business, but I knew it was going to be very expensive. So I knew it wasn't necessarily something I could do right away. So I had taken a online course um, taught by Megan Amen, and it was on a website called Creative Live. And the course is still there. It's, you can still buy it. It's actually super affordable. I recommend it to people all the time. But I think it's called Selling Your Products to Retailers or... Yeah, I think it's just called selling your products to retailers. Yeah. But basically it's in the show notes. Yeah, it's basically for handmade product makers, um, how to kind of make that transition. Megan is a jewelry designer and she does all she makes all of her jewelry by hand. Um and she had been doing trade shows specifically New York now for a very a long time. And so she had a lot of experience and she was really open in that course, sharing a lot of her experiences. I had had the opportunity to meet her at a show in New York and we kind of became friends. And when she was doing this course, I was taking it and she asked if I, there was a live portion of the course with real students and in, in person, I was not one of them that this was on the West coast, but she was asking for some um, line sheets. She was going to do like a live line sheet audit. So if you purchase this course, you can see my first line sheet with our vintage candles and like really bad <laughs> packaging get critiqued. Um, but you know, even then, even with that quality of stuff, I still put a little line sheet together. It was just kind of like a one page line sheet. Um, because you need something when you're talking to, to stores. So after kind of taking that course, um, I, and I think maybe before, but basically I had started to get our first few accounts just by cold emailing. And instead of focusing on stores that were nearby, I mean, I lived in New York city. There were a million stores nearby. Mm -hmm. I focused on stores that I considered influential in the independent business owner store owner space. Hmm. So I specifically mean? like, I mean, I treated like who I was going to reach out to like an influencer strategy for Instagram. <laughs> hmm. So at the time there was a lot of like, um, I don't, wow. I'm going to totally forget the name of this shop now that I think about it. Um, cause they're no longer in business, but there was a store up in Vermont and the owner was very, she often would speak at like, you know, different trade shows. And she was very influential in the community, in like the community of makers and a lot of other small businesses I knew also followed her store. There's a couple stores in this category that I could think of people that I knew other store owners looked up to. Um, I wanted their feedback first. So this, Oh, was it called Clementine? 
anyway, it's not important. <laughs> if, I do, if I remember, we'll put it in the show notes. Um, but basically I reached out and, and this one woman in particular, they became our first stockist and she was great because I could really ask for feedback too. And she gave me some feedback about our travel candle tins. We didn't have anything on the side label. There was no label on the side originally. It was just a label on the top, but the label on the top didn't have the scent name. It was only on the warning label on the bottom. Mm -hmm. So she was like, when they're all stacked up, people can't tell what they are, that they're different. Um, Mm-hmm. And that was kind of how we decided to add, you know, a label to the side. So like feedback from your retailers is really important. So I really wanted to not feel intimidated by just like going after a really big account. I wanted to, I knew we had work that could be done. So we kind of slowly built our way up. Um, and you're going to hear when you do cold emailing, it's a numbers game. So you're going to get more more unresponded emails than you'd like, but, um, every once in a while, someone will get back to you. And then every once in a while, one of those people will place an order. So yeah. it does, I would say, don't let it, don't take it personally. Just keep going. <laughs> I think that's away at such it. an important point about, um, about like the wholesale new account process. I think if you email five people about your business and you hear nothing back and then give up, like you are, you're preventing yourself from so much opportunity. I think Mm. I, I would actually love to do some research on what is the average, but you're right for me with good Sheila, it's mostly no response at all. Then, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know, maybe 10% of people I hear back from, but within that 10%, mm-hmm. it's like at least We're half no. Right now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so you have to, you have to send a lot of emails and let's talk about this. I know that you have, you have a lot of success with your like cold email strategy. So I'm guessing that you do it pretty well which is not going to be like a copy paste. Everyone gets the same thing kind of outreach. So how do you approach if you're sending a cold email to a so store I would that say you would like love how to I start did it when product? I started out is different that? than how I do it now. So I was definitely much more cold emailing in the beginning because it was kind of frowned upon to like call the store or definitely frowned. It's all, I think it's always frowned upon to just show up with your products on a busy Saturday. Um, mm-hmm. But the whole like other interactions online wasn't really as prevalent. I don't really think people were using direct messages in the same way that they do today. So I was really cold emailing, but getting to know the store and really like looking at what what else they were carrying online, really being honest with myself, if I thought that the product was genuinely a good fit or not. Um, yeah. And then reaching out, you know, taking the time to really figure out who the buyer or the owner's name is. It's not that hard. You can probably figure it out. (laughs) If you can't, you know, hey, such and such store team is acceptable, but really like try and figure it out. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, just kind of being genuine, offering to send samples. you know, that often, especially with a scented product would at least get like a response. Like they're not usually going to write an order without smelling it. So be prepared to send samples. If you do have kind of a, um, 
if you're selling candles or other like personal care kind of goods, they're probably going to want to touch and feel them. Um, and that can get, obviously can get a little Which expensive. Which speaks to how important it is to like be picking stores that are actually a good fit, <laughs> you know, so right. you're not sending yeah, samples you out to, to like everyone. No, for sure. Don't, yeah, don't do that. <laughs> if you want to send stuff to everybody in the mail, I think a snail mail, like postcard mailing is still a good idea. Um, because at the end of the day, you can kind of be sure that somebody saw a picture of your product and then you can maybe follow up with an email after the snail mail was sent. Especially if you're going to do a trade show, this is a great way to do like a mass mailing of a physical, you know, thing. And then you've got something in their hands. So that's always like a good option. Mm-hmm. These days, if I find a store that I think is a good fit, I follow them on Instagram. And that's the first thing I do for like a good, at least two weeks. I follow them on Instagram and I make sure that I'm engaging with their content. That means watching their stories, like responding if something is funny or resonates or commenting on their posts, like not in a spammy way, in a genuine, I like your stuff. I'm following you because I like your stuff kind of way. Mm -hmm. A lot of times that will result in them like following back if they, if they kind of see, but at the very least story reactions and story replies will often get you into their main inbox. Yeah. This is not, this is, this is totally genuine. I just have like, I'm not doing this in a weird, like tactical way, but if they reply to your story reply or say, thank you or whatever, you're in their main inbox. When you send them another message, they're going to get the notification and it's not going to be in their unread, like who knows kind of spam folder on, on Instagram. So then if I do think, or we are starting to do some promotion, or I do want to send them samples or send them a line sheet or whatever, I will send them an Instagram message first and simply say like, I don't have to, I don't have to put the whole pitch in there. It doesn't have to be, Hey, we're launching a new collection that I think would be a really great fit for your store. Would it be okay if I send you some samples? And if so, is it okay to send them to the store address? And then sometimes you won't hear anything. Sometimes you'll get a, Oh, thanks so much for thinking of us. Sure. You can send them to the store. And then if you're going to mail physical samples straight to the store, great, go ahead, do that. Then follow up by email. If you don't want to send samples right away or don't have samples to send, you can say, Hey, we're launching a new collection. I think it would be a really great fit or I really love your shop. I think my, I think our products would really work really well. Maybe even mention a specific product. Right. So mm-hmm. that it's not just like a blanket, you know, whatever we, we have this one card that I just feel like you guys would love. Can yeah. I send you guys, can I send you a line sheet? What's a good email for you? You know, yeah. you're just trying to get the email address, move the conversation over to email, but because you've already had some genuine interaction, you know, in the DMS, it's more likely to get a response. And then you're building a real relationship with these people. I have had such strong relationships in the last couple of years built over Instagram DMs with my buyers because they know they can reach me quickly. They know I'm a hot mess with my actual inbox. So <laughs> you're more likely to get me to respond if you DM me something. But I just feel like between watching their stories, like I genuinely know them as people, even if we've never met. And at the end of the day, wholesale is a relationship business. Yeah. You are building relationships with these people because at the end of the day, it's not just a store. There's another person on the end of that transaction. That person is the buyer. They might also be the owner of the store. But either way, you have a job to do. 
sell product. They have a job to do, buy product for their store. You're not inconveniencing them by suggesting product that they should buy for their store. You're trying to help them do their job. They might not like the product that you're trying to sell, but that's a whole other story, you know? So I think just realizing that like, it's a B2B transaction, but there's still people behind it and you can still approach it in a very like human way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. People buy from people. Mm -hmm. Um, When you look at your overall like wholesale accounts, I know that you're on FAIR, which for those of you who don't know, FAIR is a kind of marketplace with a lot of makers on it where stores can buy wholesale. Um, It sounds like you do a lot of find, you know, kind of nurturing these relationships over social media and maybe some cold Mm -hmm. emails. But when you look overall at like your roster of stockists that you have, what percentage comes from what? Like, and maybe let's say in the last year or so, so it's super relevant for people of the new accounts you've gotten in the last couple of years, where have they mostly mm-hmm. come from? And also, I guess, have like considering also like uh, trade shows. Yeah. Um, I would say new accounts, a good portion come from fair. Um, so there's with fair, there's kind of two different categories. There's fair stuff that comes through the marketplace, meaning like they found you through fair's platform. They were searching on fair and then they placed an order with your store. I might not have ever spoken to that person. I almost never send them samples before they place an initial order. A lot of times they're just trying it out because fair makes it really easy for them to just kind of okay, I see it. I want it. It's in my cart. You know, I bought it. And for the Mm -hmm. most part, those stores are, I would say I have to really work to build the relationship and to build up their orders. So usually if I get an account on fair out of the blue, like I've had no interaction with them, I immediately go follow them on Instagram. Um, and I might send them a message through fair asking for their email address so that I can put it on my email marketing list. So I have a wholesale email marketing list. And I find that that is the most important thing for consistency in nurturing reorders. You really just want to stay top of mind to these retailers. That just means like popping in at least once a month, letting them know what's in stock. If something is backordered, like just giving them an update on like where things are at. If you have anything new, but you don't have to have had anything new. You just have to kind of keep up to date with them. What I've realized is that some stores will be on our list for years. Like maybe they wrote an order. I mean, even this last trade show that we did in New York, I got a reorder from a store that had not ordered. They ordered from us once in like 2017 or something a million years ago. I keep a master spreadsheet of all of our retailers, like all of their orders. And that has a ton of people on it, but a ton of people that only ordered once. And Mm -hmm you never hear from. And maybe I did a bad job of following up, but sometimes those people come back more likely than not. We've had new, uh, an account that I might consider a new account because it's been like four or five years. But when I go back, like, yeah, they ordered from us before. Um, Hmm. So always keeping those records, I think are important, especially when it comes to fair, because the other side of fair is fair direct, which means you have a relationship with this store, an existing relationship, whether you pitched them before, whether they've ordered from you before, 
either way, both count. Right. And then if you are able to prove that to fair, then that store, you don't pay fair a commission for. So it is our goal to have a higher percentage of fair direct accounts than not fair direct accounts. Mm -hmm. So I really work on making sure that when I think somebody is a good fit, I've at least reached out to them in some capacity so that if down the line, they don't answer me back, but go order on fair. I can at least show fair that I had some initial contact with this person Mm -hmm. and hopefully remove that commission. So that's kind of, I would say we have a lot of our customers who order through fair, but I would say a good 70% of those customers who order through fair as a platform are fair direct accounts. Either they've ordered from us before, or we've had other existing relationships, cold emailing, whatever. I would prefer stores to order on fair because for me, it is at least, and my shipping manager, it's just a little bit easier to maintain and keep all, like keep the wholesale kind of all in one place and keep up to date with like what's shipped, what hasn't shipped. So when we do our cold email pitches and at the bottom of every wholesale email for like our email marketing list, there there's a link to shop on fair. It's on our, it's on our website. Like I don't mind if they go direct and I don't have to pay a commission. I'm not, I don't like hold fair back in that way. Um, it's actually easier for us. So I would say a good portion of our independent retailers, over 50% of our independent retailers order on like through fair as a platform. Yeah. I would just say as a store owner, it's, so convenient to use fair. Like I do want to make sure that our, the makers that we buy from, like they get most of the money we're paying, you know, like we're not Mm -hmm. giving it all to fair, but it's so streamlined. It's so such an easy ordering experience and they have net 30, 60, someday, sometimes even 90 day terms, which Mm -hmm. for those of you who don't know means we get the order before we pay for it, which just depending on your cash flow situation is can be really helpful, especially during certain seasons. So, um, and just to clarify for everybody who's not familiar, fair is extending those terms to a store owner. You are not extending those terms. Right. So fair either pays you right away or net 30, you have a choice and it will affect how much you, you pay them in a percentage or not. But, um, yeah, just to just to clarify, you yeah. don't have to wait ninety days to see your money, but Very good point. they can wait ninety days to pay to pay for it. Right. So that is for that reason, it's a lot it's of huge. stores like me, like mine, really like using fair. So just keep that in mind. I know a lot of people are resistant. A lot of makers are resistant to it because there is a commission, and I think the commission right now is twenty five percent they take from your first order and then 15% on future orders um, on a store's first order with you and then future orders. But again, if you, if you direct someone to buy through your fair direct link for the first time, then they don't take any commission at all. So just wanted to add that perspective as a store owner, because it is, it's very useful tool to have. Um, Well, and I have an interesting question for you though. So in the last like two years, as because, you know, the next topic that I was going to touch on are trade shows, how has fair, like for your buying, like how does it compare to going to a show and seeing products in person or have you not, we don't do shows. Are you still not going back to shows? We've never really done them. Like we've done a few local ones just because 
it's like around, but our buying is usually just like we find people on Instagram. Sometimes it's because they reached out to us, but mostly it's because we found them. Um, so yeah, I would say fair doesn't have a great ability to search for local businesses in the way that I would like. So, Mm. and we buy a lot of local, so it is a big pro to me if I find a small business and then I can order them on fair (laughs) because it just, again, it's streamlined. It's easy. So, um, but yes, let's go back to your, so, uh, a lot of your transactions take place through fair. Um, also you get a bunch of accounts through, through trade shows, but in overall, how many of your like new accounts came from fair versus you reached out to them first? Would you say? Mm, I would say it's probably like 70, 30, we reached out to them or they reached out to us directly. We get a good amount of influx. Like you said, you discovering brands on Instagram, we get a a decent amount of people just reaching out to us um, or finding us. And then, you know, we also do trade shows, which I would consider, you know, direct outreach. And then we do still have one sales rep group in California. We kind of stopped working with a lot of reps um, just because it wasn't really working for our business at the time. But for a while, we were in showrooms in Atlanta. We were in showrooms in Las Vegas and Dallas and LA, in addition to doing a trade show on our own in New York. Mm-hmm. That was a lot. Yeah. Um, it's a lot. It's super expensive. It's a lot to maintain. Um, and, and I think it can get you a lot of new accounts, but what we were really struggling with was retention. We were really struggling with people like people that would write first orders at shows, like getting them to write a second and a third order when it came to working with sales reps, where we weren't seeing that problem when it came to working with stores that we met at a trade show or that reached out to us or that we cold emailed Um, because that relationship wasn't necessarily as strong. I'm sure, I mean, not all, not all reps are the same, but at least in our experience, we, we weren't really seeing the kinds of reorders that we would have wanted. Um, So we kind of moved away from that model and now are considering, um, I think this summer I'm going to go walk Atlanta and decide if we want to do it in the temporaries, um, in the winter, or if we're just going to stick with just exhibiting in New York. So for right now, we just exhibit in New York, um, at shop object. And I will say the last two shows, you know, since COVID, um, since they came back with in-person shows to New York have been, you know, they're definitely different. Um, I would say they're not necessarily as successful as they've been in the past. So we're kind of watching it closely to consider how, you know, if it's worth it or not, um, for us in the long term. But at the end of the day, you know, like I said before, we still have a scented product. We still have something that, you know, we really want people to see and experience in person. So I do find trade shows beneficial for awareness for like brand awareness. And then it's all about the follow-up that you're doing afterward um, in order to really close the deal. I would say of all of the stores we had meaningful conversations with at this last show in February, meaning I got their business card, you know, we, we talked for a little bit, um, which was maybe 20 people. So that seems like not a lot, but you know, people just walk right past your booth. 
Um, I was able to write orders for 15. Oh, wow. And almost all of those were new accounts. I would say half of them happened at the show and the other half happened within a week or two worth follow-up emails. Mm -hmm. Wow. And I didn't have a full catalog at the show. So it was a great opportunity to, as soon as they walked away from my booth, go to my computer. I had a templated email saved, um, saved in, um, I use streak, which is Mm -hmm. like a in Gmail CRM, but you can save these like snippets. So I had a snippet for shop object and then it was like, it was so nice meeting you use their name. It was so nice meeting you today at at shop object. Just so you know, as promised, here's a link to our full catalog. Let me know if you have any questions or if you'd like samples or I could customize it if I'd already promised to send them samples, whatever. And then we were really I was really surprised with that kind of quick follow-up, how much I was able to close after the show um, as a percentage of people that I actually talked to. It did feel like I wasn't talking to a lot of people, but being able to open that many new accounts, if I can get half of them to reorder every six months, that's a huge success. Yeah. How much, I mean, I'm going to, I know that this will vary widely, but what would you suggest broadly that people would need to budget in terms of if they wanted to do one of these big shows like New York now or shop object or the national national stationary show? Like what kind of investment is that? So the national stationary show doesn't exist anymore. Really? Um, there's a new show called noted that's kind of taken its place a little bit. Um, so that's something to look into if you're doing strictly kind of paper goods. But New York Now or Shop Object or even Atlanta and the Temporaries, I feel like a good ballpark figure is $10,000. Um, you can do Shop Object for cheaper because they have different booth sizes than other shows typically do. But I would say to be comfortable between travel, lodging, uh, marketing expenses, all those kinds of things, you know, like buying furniture or shelving for your booth, shipping all of your product there and back. Um, I, I feel like 10,000 is a good round number to aim for. Yeah. Okay. That's really helpful. I feel, I feel like it took me years to get a round number out of anybody about trade shows. So that's why I just like to say like, look, yes, it costs this much money. Like that's really helpful. Your space is probably going to cost half of that at least. And if you're not doing shop object, that's like $5,000 or $6,000 for like a square of concrete on the ground. You're going to have to bring in walls. You're going to have to bring in, you know, everything else, at least shop object, like they provide you with walls, which is very, very helpful. And I would say I prefer their like vendor load in load out process over working at the Javits center. We did the Javits center for a couple of years, but, um, where is shop? Object? I would say in New I, York. I, it's in, where in New York? It's yeah. on the Lower East Side. Hmm. Yeah, right now it's in Basketball City at one of the piers. Um, and I don't know how. I mean, Shop Object was also just purchased by um, what's the name of the company? Anyway, one of the really big trade show companies that owns America's Mart and owns the Las Vegas Market Center. So hmm. Watch this space. I don't really know what's going to happen over the next couple of years. You know, they say that they want to keep it how it is. Um, 
but we all know how these things kind of go. So I don't really know what's going to happen, but that kind of was a shocking um, announcement that happened at the, at the end of this past show that they had been acquired. Hmm. So um, one more question on wholesale, what percentage now would you say of your business is wholesale versus retail? 70, 30, 70% wholesale, 30% retail. And two years ago, it was like 90, 10. Hmm. So what has COVID really, yeah, I would say that when the initial shutdowns happened, we had a huge, like not huge, but we had a pretty big influx to online. Um, a lot of people, you know, would write mess like write me messages after they they play you know they placed an order on our website saying, "Oh, I've been buying your candles at such and such place for years. Now that I'm stuck at home, I really wanted them, but my favorite shop was so closed." We're talking like those first two months of lockdown. Mm-hmm. It caused people to realize, "Oh wow, I'm at home. I'm using these things more, and where can I get more of these?" And finally, decide to like look on the bottom of their candle and realize that we had a website. I don't know, but we, we really saw a pretty big um, influx of that Yeah. to, you know, to online, to e-commerce. And then at the beginning of last year, um, so kind of, we just kind of hung on that first year, 2020, just like really trying to keep the balance of this influx of e-commerce and the wholesale kind of slowly coming back, you know, as it did. And we ended that year slightly down in revenue. However, our profit increase was up 600% because we didn't do, we were doing more direct to consumer and we weren't doing trade shows. So we didn't have all these travel expenses, like all the, and our employees were, were lower. We were kind of just hustling and not really paying as much in payroll as we had previously. Um, and we had gotten a PPP loan. So there were a lot of things, but like it made me realize, oh, wow, I, I could focus a little more on e-commerce and, you know, really kind of dramatically shift the business. Um, and that was kind of my goal for 2021. Although halfway through the year, after spending a lot of money on Facebook ads, I realized I wasn't really moving the needle and I just needed to focus on more customer awareness and like growth. Um, so last year was the year that like we really started doing reels and our social media presence really grew um, a lot. Mm-hmm. We started the year at like 8,600 followers and we ended the year at over 20,000. Wow. So what do you attribute yeah. so that it was a to? Pretty big reels entirely? Reels. Yeah. Yeah. I can draw a direct correlation. <laughs> and what kind Even of like reels? Now, when I, when I, behind the scenes stuff, a lot of behind the scenes stuff, nothing super crazy. I did not dance one time. (laughs) I did not do any pointing at any screens. Um, it was just behind the scenes content and like people really seeing that like this was a small business and there were just a couple people working at this company and really just kind of pulling back the curtain. And of course I will say that following increased a lot with other makers. Like there are a lot of other makers that follow me. I don't know what percentage of those people are our target customer at all. But I will say when a new person comes to your page and sees a significant amount of followers and sees kind of good engagement on your posts, I do think that that continues to help you get new followers right? because there's certain inherent trust value there Yeah, that you must be doing something right. Mm-hmm. Hmm. 
So good. Well, Sarah, I feel like um, I'm going to have to have you back on the podcast because we didn't even get to like half of what I wanted to talk about, which is scaling and hiring. Um, I'm sorry. No, I, I am so glad that we got to dig so deep into wholesale because I think it is sort of this like mystery to most makers. Like they just don't really get it. And you gave so many awesome tips and just like suggestions on how to get started with it. The last thing. Okay. So the last thing I want to say on the topic though, before we wrap it up, because you, so it is such a mystery and some people I think are so afraid of of it. Yeah. The first thing they think about is cutting their prices in half. Right. And how am I going to make that work. And the best advice I ever got was making sure you were profitable at the wholesale price point and the retail price point doesn't even really matter uh, at that point because a store is going to market up to whatever they want to market up to. You can't really control that. Um, they want to make money. So don't be worried about them marking it up to like less than MSRP. They're going to at least double it, probably more. So making sure your wholesale price point is profitable is is the number one thing. And that might mean changing your pricing and that might be scary, but that is important. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing about, you know, feeling like, Oh, but I'm selling something for $20 when I could be selling it for 40 is it's not about, you know, the profit margin. It's about the revenue. At least it was for me. If I could make, if I could spend an hour or two on my marketing materials a week, but focused on wholesale, answering emails, you know, making sure I'm really building those relationships. And that would result in $5,000 of orders that I have to ship out this week versus a couple hundred dollars in e-commerce orders that I might've had to pay X amount in Facebook ads to get. Um, I'd rather do the wholesale. Yeah. All day. Yeah. Great point. Um, anything else on the topic of like marketing that, you want to share before we start to go into the wrap up questions? Like, have you done any PR? I guess is another question I have for you. Um, outreach to get, yeah, I know you've I been featured. I haven't done a ton. We haven't done traditional PR because frankly, I've never been able to afford it. And I had a friend who, who has a business that I would say is very similar to mine in the skincare space. And she did have a really great PR up for a while. They got a lot of placements, all those kind of like refinery 29 type articles. I mean, I was seeing, I feel like it was really great. And so when I was considering finally like doing it and spending the money, I asked her, so how was, how was that? Like, did it really move the needle for sales? And she said, no, hmm. it's, you know, like the PR was great, but like it didn't really, you know, affect their sales numbers at all. So I feel like if we organically get featured and picked up places, great. If not, I don't, I don't really worry too much about it. Um, yeah. I, I, I really want to do things that are going to drive, drive revenue. And I want to spend the time that I'm spending to be the most revenue generating time it can be. Yeah. So are there any other things we haven't really covered in terms of your marketing strategy? I mean, I think that around the time last year when I started to focus more on on e-commerce, really getting a handle on my email marketing was really important. That was around the time that I met you, Lauren, and we were on Clubhouse and really just like learning a ton about 
all these different platforms. And I made the switch over to Klaviyo and really taking the time to understand it and set it up correctly, I think has paid dividends because while I'm not the most consistent in sending out newsletter emails, like regular kind of campaigns and stuff anymore, um, all of the flows, all the automated emails that happen when you join my list are still working. So that stuff still, still works great. And then we have automated like out of like back in stock notification flows, which work really great. Um, so really taking the time to kind of get those, understand those tools and set them up so that they're working for you when you're not working. Like you have to write that email one time and then it's continually working for you. Um, I think was really beneficial. Mm, Yay. I love when email comes up. (laughs) Great answer. Um, Okay. Again, I want to have you back so we can talk about scaling and hiring, but I am aware we're way over time. So I want to be respectful that it's late, getting late there. Um, One question that I like to ask all of my guests is how do you approach doing good through your small business? So I was thinking about this a lot as you like you had kind of sent over that question. And I, you know, our business in particular does not have like a specific kind of more philanthropic like aspect where we donated a portion of our proceeds or anything. When I think about doing good through my small business, I really like to think of it on a kind of like micro local aspect. So the fact that, you know, small businesses put so much money back into their community just by living here, working here, shopping with other small businesses. And by the fact that I'm supporting so many other, um, local women who work for me and providing them with a living, I feel like you're doing so much good in the world just by keeping more money in your local economy, really being mindful about where you're spending your money. Is there an independent chain you could be shopping at versus buying something from Amazon? Nobody's a hundred percent perfect, but just trying to be more mindful about shopping small, shopping local, I feel like is such a huge um, impact that I'm happy to be a part of. Yeah. And I love that answer because you don't have to make those choices you're making. You know, you could probably get things cheaper um, from big production lines and manufactured in ways that maybe don't align with your values. But we I think small businesses are really very likely to make these intentional shopping decisions, which has huge ripple effects. Mm-hmm. So I love that answer. Um, what, Thank you. what is one small business that you admire? Oh, hands down, it has to be um, Kristen and Tom, who are the owners of PF Candle Co. Mm -hmm. Um, They were so lovely in opening up their warehouse to me, like maybe five or six years ago, I went out and visited them in LA. And the way that their business has grown, I truly cannot even fully fathom how it functions at the size that it is now. I think they have over 80 employees. Um, but it's just so impressive because they've done it all independently. And, um, I really, I really look up to them. Not, I'm not a hundred percent sure I ever really want to get to that point. I go back and forth on that on a regular basis, but I think it's really inspiring for sure. Yeah. Cool. I will link them for sure. Um, what is a business book or more than one, if you have them that you would recommend? Ooh, a business book. Let's see. Um, I'm not. Some people don't answer okay. with a business book. Some people have a different <laughs> book, kind of book. So answer however you want. 
Okay. Um, let's see. I would say I really appreciated. I hate this answer because I feel like in the last five years, this has gotten like such a bad, cringy like reputation. Um, but when I was starting my business, I found Girl Boss to be a very good read um, back in the day. A lot has happened with that company and that person. So I don't know how I feel about it now. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but in general, I tend to like things that are written more like business memoirs. So, um, Tony Shea from Zappos, his memoir, which I feel like is called delivering happiness, Yeah, but we'll have to double check that is a, an amazing read because it was all about how like he wasn't building a shoe company. He was building a customer service company. And I think that it's so important, um, to really have that kind of mindset. So if that was a really great read as well. And then um, another one that's not business related, but has to do with like your work ethic and just like a good life story that I have read multiple times is um, Anthony Bourdain's No Reservation, not No Reservations, um, his first book, which I don't remember what it's called now. Oh, Cooking Confidential. Hmm. Wow. Um, it's amazing. And if you get the audiobook, um, Bourdain narrates it, which is like just so such a joy and it makes me miss him so much as a human being. Um, mm-hmm. but definitely a, a great read. Um, and just a really interesting, I mean, I find the backside of any business super fascinating. So the restaurant industry is something that's always like really intrigued me. And I feel like you just learn a lot from seeing how people built their careers, even when it doesn't necessarily directly relate to yours. Mm-hmm. Fun. Great answers. Thank you. Um, Okay. So let's talk about, I know that obviously you have so much expertise as a small business owner who has scaled and you do a little bit of consulting or just like uh, answering people's questions on a call. So would you share a little bit about that? And also where can people find Simply Curated, learn more about your business and connect with you online? Yeah. So for the connecting with us, we're usually just at Simply Curated pretty much everywhere. I would say Instagram and TikTok have become kind of like the two main things, places that I spend my time. Um, I would say with all of the sharing all the behind the scenes stuff and just opening up my business to being more transparent with other makers, um, that was where we really increased our following. And a lot of people were just kind of amazed like that I was willing to share this information. And to be honest, I have kind of mixed feelings about it because it it doesn't really cost me anything to share, you know, how we do this or, or what we do with this or what I would, you know, advise you to do, to do X, Y, and Z. Um, but also Google is free and I learned all this stuff somehow. So (laughs) sometimes it does feel a little bit frustrating, um, when I get asked the same questions over and over again. However, I did find that a lot, once in a while, there would be a specific case or somebody would ask me a very specific question that I felt like I can help you, but I need to really like go into detail. And I didn't really have an outlet for that. Um, that was going to be respectful of my time and this person's time, you know, as well and be helpful to them more so than just a couple like Instagram DMs back and forth. So if you go on Instagram and you click on my link there, which has just got a, a couple of different links on our website, um, there is one that's called consulting calls and you can book a call with me, um, 
most of the time I'm talking to people about wholesale, scaling wholesale or doing their first trade show, or maybe it's an audit of their, um, their catalog, or maybe they've been cold emailing and they want me to take a look at, um, at their cold email message that they've kind of been sending out, you know, as their, as their kind of starting point. And that one, I, I did that for one person and I can tell you, oh my gosh, I, made so many changes. And I don't think it was things that she ever thought about, but I'll kind of give you a little nugget. When she was writing this email, everything about it in, in the, in this initial like pitch was about her. Mm -hmm. Wasn't about the store owner at all. Wasn't about what this product, like why it would be good for your store. It was just like about her mission and why she started the business and information about the business, which is just like not helping you sell the product at the end of the day, it was kind of read really long winded. And so we were really able to make a bunch of revisions, um, really kind of keep it short and sweet bullet points. And then, you know, a link out to somewhere where they can get more information or pictures or something. Um, and you know, I think it made really a dramatic change for her. So that's just been really fun being able to work with other business owners, um, kind of where they need targeted help. Yeah. Awesome. I'm sure that you will have some people taking you up on that. Well, Sarah, again, we're going to have to have you back, but thank you so much for coming on the show and spilling the beans with all things wholesale in particular. I think I really admire your sort of like open book policy, like, you know, answering all my questions really freely and being so generous with your experience. So thank you so much. I'm super grateful. Well, thank you so much, Lauren, for having me. I really had a great time. Sarah, oh my gosh, I could chat with you and pick your brain forever. Thank you so much for everything you shared. And I'm already scheming another opportunity to have you on the podcast. I also wanted to mention that Sarah is actually going to be a guest expert coming up soon in Making Good Happen, my membership program. If you want to get in on that and see that session, consider joining us at makinggoodhappen.co. The link is in the show notes. You can get all the details from this episode at makinggoodpodcast.com slash 114. I know Sarah and I would both love to hear from you on Instagram. You can find Sarah and Simply Curated at Simply Curated, and I'm at Lauren Tilden. If you enjoyed this episode, I would be so grateful for your support. Here are three ways that you can help spread the love. First, you could leave a rating and review in your favorite podcast player. Second, if you have a friend that you think would enjoy the podcast, send them the link to this episode. And third, I would love for you to take a screenshot of your podcast player while you're listening and tag me on social media at Lauren Tilden. I would love to connect with you and cheer you on. Thank you for being here and for focusing on making a difference with your small business. Talk to you next time.